Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hey gang, welcome to today's episode of Blockhead. We have a very special episode for you today. Seth is here. Yes, Seth. For those of you who know the podcast primarily as a originally as a Peanuts tribute, Seth, of course, was the designer of the Peanuts Complete Hardcover series from Fanagraphics, as well as one of the greatest cartoonists of my generation uh, working today. I could say that without reservation. Seth is one of the most, to me personally, one of the most important cartoonists working today, whether he's of my generation or of any generation. It, it doesn't matter. His work in the pantheon of comics, for me, stands very, very high indeed. You know, those of us who are cartoonists who are, you know, as we, Seth and I talk about this later on, too, about how one constructs a pantheon, you know, of, of cartoonists, artists, whatever you know, creative arena you work in, people who are influences and, and people whose work you just enjoy. For example, in my own case, there are artists who, who I love simply for, for reasons of style, aesthetic reasons, or, or the style just appeals to me uh, for reasons I'm not even sure of. But, you know, I think of Wally Wood, for example, or I think of uh, Harry Lucy, um, artists like that whose work speaks to me in a very kind of formal way. There are mechanics involved in what they do that appeals to me as an artist and that I want to incorporate into my own work. So there's that kind of artist on the list of great, you know, influences and those great artists we love. And then there are those who speak more more emotionally, those who speak more profoundly to something that, that is deep within you. And, of course, Charles Schultz is preeminent for me among those. But there's also Jack Kirby. And certainly in the top 10 of that list, for me, is Seth. And why is that? What is it about Seth's work that really speaks to me? So many things. You know, on the surface of it, I just love his cartooning. You know, stylistically, I just think there's something just so essentially cartoony about what he's doing. The distillation of form and the simplification and the, the way he works with shape and space and, and his pacing and his storytelling. All of that stuff formally is just great. And, uh, and that speaks to me and the and the kind of directness of his approach um, speaks to me but there's something more right there's something more at work there that gets to my heart it gets to my soul and what is that for me whether it's in Clyde fans or it's in you know George Sprott or it's it's a good life if you don't weaken uh, all of those books there's something that Seth is searching for and communicating and that's something about the essential nature of being what does it mean to be alive? What, what does it mean to exist, to breathe, to perceive, you know, to observe? Um, what, does it, what does time mean? And, and what does it mean to exist within time? How do we connect to those 
who are no longer here, those ghosts of the past, you know, those who've come and gone, and what do the remnants of their lives mean? I'm one of those people who, um, you know, finds meaning in objects from the past. And, and, you know, for a long time, I remember I used to buy video versions of old cartoons that I watched as a kid, hoping that somehow they would be a doorway to to lo- that life, that I could step through that doorway and I could, for a moment anyway, um, exist within that time and, and feel all of it and connect to all of the people who lived uh, at that moment, people who, who I miss now and who I loved and or love still and and you know while Seth's work is not nostalgic it's about the excavation of the past and what the past means to the construction of the now and the construction of the future so yeah the the work means a lot to me and so I've been uh on and off trying to put this together for a long time and finally it came together and I'm so pleased that it did the show turned out you know really really to be everything I I hoped for and uh and that's no surprise because Seth is just he's not only a great cartoonist one of the greatest cartoonists um but he's also uh such a great person to talk to and so that's really cool it makes for a really great show And I hope that you are going to get as much out of this as I did. We're going to get to Seth in just a minute. Before we do that, I want to remind you. Well, actually, I just want to announce my Kickstarter for Green Screen, 36-page full-color comic sci-fi fantasy adventure, something entirely different from what Seth does and what uh, I'm speaking about in terms of appealing to me, but something very, very different. My Kickstarter drops today. It's posted. It's up. It's live. Head over to greenscreencomic.com. There's a, a video that introduces the story. It's a video. Also, there's a video of me if you ever wondered what I look like and why I'm doing a podcast instead of video blogs or whatever uh, you'll find out when you go to to uh, my Kickstarter greenscreencomic.com there are a lot of great rewards there's a lot of uh, really neat stuff available to you at different levels there are actually two comic books available to you green screen number one and green screen zero zero which is like the origin story how it all began and then green screen number one which is the main project and that is the first issue of what I hope is a a long-lasting series that explores movies, really. Uh, It's about getting lost in in the world of movies, Uh, in this case via uh, a Hollywood movie star and uh, her compatriots who are all lost in this universe called the Cineverse. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's going to be even more fun as it progresses, and I hope you'll jump in and join here at the beginning. Uh, so check out the Kickstarter. It is at greenscreencomic.com. There'll be more about that later. But right now, let's get to the reason we're all here. <laughs> and that is to talk to Seth. So here we go. Seth and myself in conversation. Hello, Seth. Welcome to Blockhead. Hi. Thanks for having me. You bet. It's great to 
have you here and I, I'm really excited about having you here because uh, I've been a fan of your work for a long time and uh, I think fan the word fan almost like trivializes um, in a sense the the meaning that your work has had to me uh, it's it's uh, it's meant a lot to me specifically your your novels have uh, really hit me where I live and so I'm really excited about having you here so uh, I, one of the first things I wanted to talk about with you, uh, because this ostensibly started off as a Peanuts podcast, uh, was your work on the Peanuts Complete series from Fanagraphics. What was that experience like? And um, how did you come you know, to do that work and then decide, make the decisions you made in regarding to uh, the design choices? Yeah, well, Peanuts, of course, has been an enormous like, uh, part of my life. Um, I mean, he's probably Schultz is the uh, the key reason I'm even a cartoonist. Um, I mean, certainly he's the first influence that pushed me towards cartooning. I mean, the very first comic strip or comic book I can remember doing was when I was a very young child, and there was a a little mini comic sort of a a, a rip off of Peanuts stuff, mostly Snoopy. So oh. I mean, he's he's been in my life, you know, since I could first read comics. Um, this is funny, you know, this could be an enormously long answer, so I'm going to try to figure out how to break it up. So let me start by saying, like, I loved Peanuts as a kid, and he's probably the first cartoonist I ever noticed, like, that there was a name on the work, and you thought, like, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Um, before that, I'm probably, you know, who knows what a, a young child even thinks where cartoons come from. <laughs> but uh, he's the first one where I, like, looked at the name in the corner, realized there was a man drawing it. And, uh, and the name seemed wrong, too. It's like Schultz was far too German, a sort of name for like who I imagine would, you know, have made these strips. Yeah. Although God knows what I thought. But anyway, I mean, I love Peanuts and I read it, you know, until my tw- into my 20s. But sometime somewhere in my teen years, I think this happens to a lot of people, you know, like um, the things you like, your your opinions of them change. So when I was reading Peanuts in my teens, I didn't think about it anymore. It was just something in the newspaper, Marvel comics, mostly as a teenager. And that's the stuff that I was really excited about. So it wasn't until my 20s I got really like I returned to Schultz in a true sense. It was sometime in my early 20s when I started to to start to do my own work as a cartoonist. I started looking at Schultz again and thinking about his work and realizing just how great it was and how much deeper the work was than the other kind of comic strips in the newspaper that I'd read without thinking as well. And then I started to collect his work up and I became more interested in him again and became obsessively interested in the work. Really interested in the idea that not everything that Schultz had done uh, was reprinted. I think I just assumed that everything was in those paperback books. Right. It wasn't. So sometime in, the, I guess, the late 80s or the early 90s, I started to go to the library and started um, looking for the like what strips had not been republished. And I knew the work so well by that point because I'd read them over and over and over and over again that I just went into microfilm and I went along. And every time I hit one that didn't look familiar, I would print it out. Oh, wow. So I started to like accumulate like several years worth of stuff that wasn't reprinted. And I put out a couple of mini zines of like, which were called something like the unreprinted peanuts or whatever, <laughs> two or three years of it. And around this time, Gary Groth was doing uh, Gary Groth, the publisher of Fantagraphics books, 
was doing um, an interview with Schultz, a big interview. And he knew I was a big fan of Schultz and he'd seen these mini comics. I probably sent them to him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to do the cover for that issue for the um, for the Schultz interview. And I said I would. And while we were talking, he said, I said to him, you know, Gary, if you ever get a chance, you know, you really should republish the entire run of Peanuts. And he said, well, you know, I'd love to do it. And I've talked to Charles Schultz about it, but he's not very interested, really. He, and, you know, he's he, like many cartoonists, his, all, his old work wasn't that of interest to him. He was interested in what he was doing today. Sure. And um, so so but I said, uh, if you ever get a chance, if you ever sway him on it, I would love to design it. And then we both forgot about that. Um, and then several years later, after Schultz died, um, Gary contacted me and said, you know, we've talked to his widow, uh, Jeannie Schultz, into doing it. Are you still interested? So this was just pure luck in a way. Probably if I hadn't been the guy to say that to Gary, he might have just got one of the in-house designers or maybe it would have been maybe it would ask Dan Klaus or I don't know. It was very lucky because for me, it was a super important um, job to get. Because it was so so close to my heart. Sure. And, you know, and so it was a, a, a going down there and pitching the book was really a big deal. Well, um, had you done a lot of design work up until that point? Not really. I mean, I did a handful. Mm-hmm. I think I was just starting at that point to do to do some book designs and some, you know, um, total book design and just covers and things like that. I think before that point, I had mostly been doing uh, comics, of course, but sure. a lot of a lot of commercial illustration too. Yeah, your comics were always uh, well designed, though. There was always a, a, a beautiful sense of typography and and uh, how you know forms work together to create a package. So maybe in that sense, Gary Groth was um, appreciative of that in approaching you as well. Well, you know, it's interesting, like my generation of cartoonists are the first cartoonists who had a chance to be designers as well, like in comics, mm-hmm. um, because we had control over the whole package. Right. Um, you can look at like the underground cartoonists and they had a certain level of control. But besides somebody like Robert Crumb, who I think was a great designer, mm-hmm. um, most of those cartoonists just did what was expected of them. They slapped a cover on it. And um, and they were, you know, there was a lot of good underground cartoonists, but I think they were interested in 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 telling stories in, you know, in drawing. They weren't so interested in design. Crumb was kind of the, the standout because his old timey interests made him want to make those comics look like a kind of product. Mm-hmm. And I, that work was really influential. And then, of course, Art Spiegelman and Francois, Francois Moulet, when they put out Raw, yeah, really changed the game. And people started to think about designing the package in comic rather than just slapping a cover on it. So I came in at a good time when I think all the cartoonists of my generation were starting to really reevaluate what design meant in how the package is seen, how the comic is read, what you yeah. can do with it. And so, you know, when I when Schultz, when the Schultz project came along, I was ready for that. I was I was geared up for it. Yeah. And and so um, now I've read the essay in Peanuts Papers. Tell the story about heading to uh, uh, Santa Rosa, uh, because I think it was quite, quite poignant, uh, the story that you told in that yeah, essay. I'm not sure if I can tell the story as well in person as, as writing it down. It's always a little different. But but uh, basically, you know, it was kind of a pilgrimage going out there. Um, mm-hmm. 
In some ways, I was glad that I didn't get to meet Schultz personally. I mean, he was dead by then. I've always been a little dicey about meeting my heroes. You know, that can easily go wrong. Yeah. Uh, and it affects the work. After you meet somebody, and, and it's, it's not like, you know, you meet them and they're a total asshole or anything. It's just that often it's awkward or or you're like, what was I expecting from this person? Or how are you supposed to connect with somebody that their work has a profound quality for you? I think when you're really young, you kind of imagine you're going to meet them and, and either you're going to become great friends or there's going to be some deep experience between you. But most of the time, they're just some other person. And it's, it's strange. And a lot of the times, I actually think it's better just don't meet anybody you admire too much. Yeah. So with Schultz. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying, I understand. I've actually been kind of standoffish. Whenever I go to uh, uh, comics conventions or something like that, uh, and, I, and I see one of my idols from my teenage years, you know, when it first got me into comics, I've never wanted to meet Neil Adams, for example. Yeah. Uh, and, and in my teen years, I was, he was, you know, uh, we're roughly of the same generation. Well, actually, we are. I'm a couple years older than you. But okay. um, so Neil Adams was big to all, all of us in the early 70s. And 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 while he's not as meaningful to me now, um, still, I revere the guy. And, um, you know, I, I, I ne I've never wanted to meet him because just because of that, you know, yeah, no. um, the one time I did meet somebody like that was I had a very lucky uh, moment where my wife and I got invited to a gallery uh, show of uh, Paul McCartney paintings. Okay. And so I got introduced to him very, you know, very briefly, just shake his hand and say hi. And uh, that was cool because there was no interaction. It was, yeah. you know, just one person among many shaking his hand. But uh, um, other than that, though, I, I've been very same feeling in general. Yeah. No, it's very tricky. I mean, I remember when I was about 21 or 22 or something, I went to a signing by uh, Matt Groening. Mm -hmm. I was a real fan of the Life and Hell strip at that point when I was really young. Mm -hmm. Somehow or other, I just really, really did not like him at that signing. I don't remember what it was that really turned me off. I felt he was, I thought he was mean somehow. It's no. funny. It turned me right off the strip. And I didn't meet Matt Groening again for probably 25 or 30 years. But when I met him, you know, I met him somewhere just, you know, like an event, some kind of a book signing or something. And I was like, God, this is a sweet guy. He was a, he was a really nice person. And I thought, like, what was it that happened that, you know, gave this bad impression? God only knows. I can't remember. But I do know this. It just goes to show you that, you know, anything can go wrong in these kind of things. Yeah. It's just yeah. a short interaction with someone. So. They could have a stomachache that day and you have no idea, you know, that they're in some kind of distress and they may be, you know, and it could color your entire perception of them and then, yeah. and then the work later. Or it could have been me. I mean, maybe I wanted something really desperately from him that I didn't get. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I do know this. It's like for a long time after that, I just had a negative opinion of his work because it affected my opinion of what he was doing. Gosh. And, and it makes you, you know, so I feel like in a sense... That's why I was very glad I didn't get to meet Charles Schultz personally. Mm -hmm. I was right. very happy to keep it with just the work. But anyway, so getting back to that story. Yes, please. Yeah, basically, um, Gary Groth, he contacted me and he said they were, you know, they basically got the idea together. But we were going to go down and promote or like basically do a book proposal to show what the book would look like. Mm -hmm. So I put together um, mock-ups of what I was going to do with the book. And I had a very specific, clear plan in mind of what I wanted it to be like, the size of the book, how it was laid out, the colors, 
all this sort of stuff. And actually, basically, almost exactly as the book was published. So, so nothing too different. And um, I went down there. I was kind of nervous, but not really, because essentially I thought, I don't really want this project. I don't want this job just because it's a job. So either they like what I want to do or I don't do it. And that's fine. So if they decide they want to go with something else, it's not like I was going to fight and try and change my design so that they could, um, I could keep the gig. It wasn't one, you know, sometimes when you're working in, in commercial jobs and you just want the money, you just, you get kind of dragged down into doing work you think is inferior. But Mm. in this case, I thought, you know, if they don't like what I want to do, then they can just get another designer. It's no big deal. But I thought I put together a uh, package that was good, and I thought that you know I could I could sell it. So mm-hmm. I went there, and um, it was an interesting experience to be there. Um, I don't know what I really expected about going there because Schultz was gone, but he was like a mentor to me, and I thought like I was going to kind of stand on on like holy ground in a way. Yeah. To be there in his studio, I didn't expect to be in his studio, to be honest. I thought we'd just go to a meeting place somewhere, some boardroom or something. But, you know, his studio was still in existence. Mm-hmm. And um, when we went in, Gary was like talking with uh, Gene Schultz and several other representatives were there. And um, I was kind of in the background. So I, you know, I went over and I like, you know, stood at his desk and looked out his window and, uh, stared at the books on his shelves that were still there. And they were very much like, you know, the boring kind of books cartoonists have in their studios, reference books, um, you know, how to draw this kind of thing. So in case you need to draw a chair or something, you've got a book of chairs. Um, There was a bunch of World War II books on the shelf, which is very typical of a man of his generation. There were some really, really terrible like uh, animal paintings on the walls, like the kind of thing you'd see like in a, a framing gallery. I don't know what he saw in those, but, you know, it was like there was some it was a real, you know, I was just young enough that there was a, a, a real quality to stand in the spot where his feet were. To sure. see the ink marks still on the desk where he had, you know. Worked on that desk probably for like, well, I don't know if it was for the whole run of Peanuts, but it certainly must have been a couple decades. So that was, you know, and I was sort of centering myself while I was over there getting ready to have the talk. And then I went over, the meeting started, and we did, you know, we went through it. I showed her everything I was thinking of. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of pushback or a lot of talk. I think that the designs went over well. I think the fact that I was, you know, really... um, I was talking a lot about Schultz himself more than the work or the books. And I could see a connection sort of in, in his widow's eyes, you know, that she understood that he was a, you know, that the Sparky was a genius and that, uh, you know, and here was somebody talking to her who understood that as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, after that, um, we went out to lunch, um, myself, my wife and Gary, we went over to the, uh, to the arena where Schultz sort of lived his life. Yeah. Anybody this who doesn't really know about Schultz's life I mean every day of his life he went over to an ice arena that he built Um, I mean he was a billionaire and um, but a very modest billionaire I mean this this is just like exactly like the kind of arena every Canadian knows there's a little coffee shop in it where he went to have lunch every day where he had his English muffin and and grape jelly and um, we sat down there and had lunch and I guess I was in a kind of a mood Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I was kind of in a disappointed mood, to be honest. I felt like 
you know, there's sometimes you go, you expect a big experience somehow and nothing had really come of it. I mean, there, the, the things I expected had come of it. I, you know, the, pro, the, the, uh, the meeting went well and we walked around his studio, went through his spaces, but, um, I guess I wanted some more personal connection. Mm-hmm. And while they we were sitting there, I just sort of excused myself from lunch and I went into the, to the, uh, to the uh, ice arena itself where I stood there and kind of watched the children skating for a while. And, um, and it was, I guess there, I wouldn't claim there was any sort of epiphany or anything, but I felt a kind of a deep experience of connection to Schultz as I stood there and watched the children playing and goofing around and just the everyday experience in the arena and thought like, you know, this was the heart of his life. And, um, you know, as a cartoonist myself, I understand that life is like the real life of a cartoonist is this is the small world. It's this little world of being in the studio every day, doing what you do every day. It's like Schultz was a celebrity, but he's not the kind of celebrity that had a celebrity's life. Oh, yeah. He had life as every other cartoonist. And um, I think it was in that moment where I felt my probably my most profound connection to him, some sense of that was as close as I was going to get to the man as I would. And um, I can still remember that feeling pretty clearly, that smell of the arena, you know, that cold smell. Sure. That every Canadian knows. Um, and yeah, yeah, it was like, just like the strip itself, I suppose, what you'd call is like a small epiphany. It's beautiful. Uh, it, it, it makes me think for a moment, uh, as you were describing being in the office, how oftentimes in your work you will do kind of... Um, a checklist of of objects within a room um, and, you know, how they contribute to our picture or image of, you know, George Sprott, for example, or one of your other characters. And and I'm wondering, as you as you stood there, um, you know, looking over the items in his room, if, if that kind of moment, you know, that kind of idea connected with you, that, that these elements were revealing of him or simply revealing of his absence? Well, certainly that is true. And I probably wasn't going through that in my mind at the moment. But I think that's my basic response to life in general. Um, I'm always kind of doing a bit of a checklist like that. Um, I mean, the works, my work is full of it because I think my mind is full of it. Mm-hmm. Um, as a child, I felt like I, my, my family, my parents were much, much older than me. And there was a series of children before me. So when I was born, my older siblings were already uh, over 10 years in between us. Oh, wow. Um, So they mostly moved out when I was still in my, before I was 10. And I I grew up in a house that was kind of full of all the remains of like a life that occurred before I was there. Well, that's fascinating. Um, And all the stuff that was in the house, I felt a really deep attachment to. I mean, I could sit down and like, Probably, you know, if I had to sit down and write in an hour, I could tell you everything that was in, you know, every box we owned um, because I was always going through all this stuff. And a lot of the stuff was like from post-war years, from the 50s and the 60s. And um, there was a real sense of um, like the, the past as physical in a physical manifestation in the house. I mean, I was really aware of that, although I certainly couldn't have expressed it. Um, and I think that that idea has stuck in my head all my life about how um, potent, how much potency there is in objects. Uh, and I think that's why there's so much of it in my work. And it's why I'm always looking around at like 
what do the objects in any place represent? I mean, it's almost, if you're interested in the past at all, it's almost a bit of a game where you, you know, you go out and you're, you go somewhere and you're like, oh, I see this is like, that's kind of a 1930s storefront, but somebody's like put a 1950s facade on it. And you'll be like, oh, look, there's still a bit of the counter in here from, you know, when it was a five and dime or whatever. You're always doing a kind of game of urban archaeology. And um, that process, it's like it's almost like there's a set of feelers or something you're sending out all the time. It makes the world more interesting somehow. Um, this feeling of, um, well, I guess of the lived in quality that the world, that the man-made world has, that we leave behind so many clues, but it's, it, these are also mundane and unimportant. In and of themselves, but mm-hmm. when you begin to make connections between them, it, you know, it's human yeah. nature really to construct stories from those connections. Absolutely. And and increasingly as I get old, I find I'm less interested in the idea of, of writing a plot for a story as mm-hmm. I am just exploring the idea of the atmosphere of something. So mm-hmm. increasingly, I think my books and, my, and not anything I'm working on, it just becomes a, a bit about who are the people and what is the place and not so much can I concoct a story to keep this interesting. I just feel like those two elements should be interesting enough in themselves. Well, and, and this, you know, it's interesting. This jumps me far, far ahead into material that I was thinking we'd get into later. But in, in some sense, Clyde fans is very much about is very much that in, in general. I mean, it's not really there are things that happen within the, the novel, obviously, but. But it's also very much about the connection that these two brothers have to place, uh, the, you know, the fans building, as well as to the, the town of Dominion um, and particularly, you know, the hill that Simon has his epiphany on. Yeah, it's funny. I think increasingly, I mean, I was working on that book for 20 years. So sometimes I think like you get whatever ideas you have, you they've always been the same. But there's something about the way the human brain operates it makes you keep thinking you're coming up with that it's always new. I mean, mm-hmm. every time I read an old diary, I think like I just wrote that same entry yesterday. Um, it's like you just keep repeating the same thoughts, but somehow they feel like they're fresh thoughts in your mind. So right now I feel like more than ever, I feel like I'm exploring the idea that of writing stories that are just about place. But then clearly 20 years ago when I started working on Clyde fans, that was in my mind then too right right and and the same thing about about the detritus of of you know uh, our lives left mm-hmm. within rooms and as you know i'm thinking about the way that book opens you know when you started it 20 years ago with mm-hmm. abe wandering around the fans building and all of these little objects that were left there and he says at one point that simon prepared the building for me and and so you know he's encountering all these elements that in some ways are reflective of simon's his brother simon's um experiences and the lessons he wanted to impart in some sense to abe yeah i mean that could be what i just literally is just what i told you about my family mm-hmm. yeah uh, in some way. i never made that connection when i wrote that down to begin with i sometimes wonder because I get older, I start to wonder, do you even have any choice in what you write about or the kind of work you do? Or if it just somehow it just it gets programmed into you by the life experiences you have. Yeah. You know, I, I, as you're saying that, I'm beginning to wonder, you know, there's this idea 
and this is something you talk about a lot too and and i think simon says it at one point um something about uh the person versus personality and the construction mm -hmm. of personality and and in some sense like we're talking about that there's some you know at least as we talk about your work there's some essential self of you that is is there from your experience as a child and it's there when you're you know beginning uh Clyde fans when you're in your 30s or so um and yet at the same time there is this like construction of uh, or search for meaning through these connections that you're making between this object and that object or this place and that person. Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, I think essentially, if I think back to my own life, I feel like whoever I was when I was four years old is the same person I am now. And yet, they don't. I don't feel like I'm the same person um, in the sense that if I was like to meet myself as a teenager, mm -hmm. we would be wildly different. Um, and yet, I think in the personality and how you relate to the world and how who you are, someone else might talk to the two of you and say, you two are so much alike. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't see it yourself. There's something, or you might see it, but it might bother you even. Um, mm -hmm. There's something strange about there's like a core of identity that you don't seem to have any control over. And then you have control over the layers you place on top of it. Or perhaps how you, you smooth it out. I mean, I think of myself, I was thinking about when I was in my early 20s the other day, and I was thinking about how how much more anxious I was back then, how much more needy I was. Um, I've become, you know, as the years go on, you you become much more comfortable with yourself. Sure. Not, you know, wherever, I'm, you know, I'll be 59 this year. So certainly I'm not concerned with the same things I was concerned of when I was 21 years old. Right. Um, it's like, the kind of, um, you know, one of the things I think about when I think I don't want, I'd never want to be young again is just how stressful it is to be young. It's hard to let go of things when you're at that age. But essentially, you know, that's the same emotions that I felt then that I feel now. I could easily like, you know, go into the same kind of anxiety if I allowed myself to, or if I just hadn't been down that path so many times that it's boring. Um there's some quality that you just, you know, you get more used to being yourself, more comfortable in your own skin, but you never quite eliminate whoever that earlier person was. And it doesn't really matter how much affectation you pile on top of it or how much control or knowledge or whatever. That does create a certain kind of personality. Uh, but then there's the core personality underneath it or the person underneath it that I feel is un unmovable. Yeah. There's like you'll be that person on your deathbed. Yeah, there's some, there is some essential self, I, you know, and I think in uh, one section of the book, actually, Abe says that people, I think it was Abe who said it, you know, people don't change. And, you know, over time, which is kind of an interesting idea um, for him to talk about. And, and um, in that particular book with, with those two brothers, um, you know, and and I think it's true. You know, I I had an experience the other day. I read, um, I, I came across. I was building these bookshelves, and I came across some stuff that was laying around. And there was a diary entry or a, a note, a sketchbook entry, and I was reading it. And all I could remember thinking was, "Oh my gosh, what what a whiner this guy is." Um, and and I thought to myself later, you know, but that's essentially probably the the same. That's me. That's the same person. But I don't imagine myself as the same person yeah. if you know what i'm saying well, i know exactly what you're talking about like about 
15 years ago, I, I went out to see um, an old girlfriend of mine who was dying, actually. And um, it was kind of like for a, a goodbye. We hadn't seen each other in about 20 years. Mm. But um, we'd been, you know, she was very important to me when I was young. And it was a big relationship. And um, and when I saw her, you know, we were talking and I said to her, do I feel like the same person to you? And she was like, you feel exactly the same to me. Uh, but for me, I felt like I was very I, I was quite different at this point. I thought like, you know, a lot of water under the bridge. Right. You know, to the outside observer, you may you may just seem exactly the same. Like, you know, if you met somebody from when you were 10 years old who hadn't seen you in all that time, they might be like, God, you haven't changed a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's. There's something or other that's at the heart of it, I think, that really doesn't change, which can be good or can be bad. Yeah, right. It's true. I mean, well, if you one thinks that we're born with these um, foibles, you know, that uh, mm. we try to escape our whole lives or try to improve upon, um, if that's what life is, you know, some kind of journey towards self-improvement I, or some journey towards the essential self or something like that, uh, which I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, you know, it, it's kind of it feels kind of self-defeating in a way if we can't get past you know, those those issues that we brought into the world with us. Um, yeah. Well, you I, don't think you can, I really don't think you can change, not in the true sense, but I do think you can wear some of the edges off. You can <laughs> you can you can um, you can do some some customizing like I have. A, I'm a strong believer in like creating your own identity. Right. Um, and I do think identity is up for grabs. Um, I think that like certainly I always had an interest in like creating an identity for myself, even as like a, a teenager. And I've spent my life really working on it, like, you know, being concerned, being aware of the fact that there's a lot of affectation in everything I do, but embracing the affectation. Mm -hmm. And um, some people, they don't like that idea. I mean, our culture is very strongly attached to the idea of authenticity. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I was in my 20s, I was very much involved in the sort of punk new wave scene. And nothing was more important than coolness. And when you really think about coolness, what is coolness? And coolness is authenticity. And now for a message from our sponsor. Hey, gang, time for the seventh inning stretch. Get yourself a drink, a nosh, if you will. And while you're doing that, I'd like to tell you a little bit about my latest project, Green Screen, which is a Kickstarter now at greenscreencomic.com. Green Screen is a 36-page full-color comic book. It's a fun comedy fantasy adventure for readers who love movies, Doctor Who, Rick and Morty, and Mad Magazine's early comic book parodies. Hollywood film star Bella Dilemma and her backstage companions have been cast adrift aboard their movie set spaceship and pulled into the Cineverse, an alternate dimension where every movie ever made is a real world. Now they're about to crash land on an alien planet that looks eerily like a much-loved animated film from the past. Ever wonder what happens to movie characters after the credits have rolled? Did Scarlett O'Hara win back Rhett Butler? What did Charlton Heston find beyond the Statue of Liberty? Did Snow White and her prince really live happily ever after? Green Screen has the answers. This Kickstarter has lots of great reward tiers, one of which is a second comic book, Green Screen Number 00, the origin story that tells how it all began. There's stickers and magnets and prints and t-shirts at a variety of different contributor levels. The Kickstarter for Green Screen Number 1 is available for the next 30 days at greenscreencomic.com. The books are complete 
and the files are at the printer just waiting for your support to give the go-ahead. Be sure to check it out before September 2nd, 2021. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you at Kickstarter at greenscreencomic.com. We now resume our regular programming, already in progress. It's the idea that, like, wow, that guy is really cool, and that he didn't do it on purpose. It's mm-hmm. that, like, if he did it on purpose, it's fake. Yeah. So somehow you fell into that perfect leather jacket, and, you know, you listened to the right music, and you said the right things, and, and that's because that's really who you were. It wasn't like the other guy you saw who was trying to do it and didn't quite pull it off was a fake. And, um, but that's, of course, nonsense. There is no real authenticity. Uh, I mean, maybe there are some kinds of authenticity, but, but a lot of stuff is constructed. And people who do a very good job at constructing their identities create like an illusion of authenticity. And um, I think that as I got older, I just thought like, well, who cares about the authenticity? Just mm. do what you actually are interested in, create whatever effect you're after, and, you know, try and enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I feel like I've been very involved in crafting an identity for myself. I'm aware that it's full of aff- uh, affectation, but... Um, I, I see that as, you know, you only go around once, you might as well do what you want. Yeah. Well, and that's part and parcel of, of what you're talking about is authentic anyway. You know, I mean, it, it's essential. There's something within you. And I, I mean, and now I don't want to get into psychoanalysis, but, you know, thinking back to what you're talking about in regard to your relationship to the objects in your house and, and repli- uh, how they represented a past and there's a certain kind of archaeology there um the the persona in a way that you've presented to the world um through your fashion choices and whatnot are are in some sense related to those kinds of experiences and maybe are just very much a part of who that essential person is so while there may seem on the surface to be affectation or we might identify it as such um in reality they are just reflective of the person you've been all along um, well, you, you do find out in life, I think, that the choices you make, which seem like choices, later seem inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, like exactly what we're talking about. It's like at some point I decided to be like Mr. 1940s guy. I used to, before that, I was like, you know, I was, you know, very much a sort of uh, punky new wave guy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember as I, you know, as I made the transition, started wearing suits and fedoras and stuff like that. A lot of it had to do with a guy I met, this guy, Ron Amaro, who was dressed in beautiful 40 suits. And I just thought he had so much class that mm-hmm. that seemed like, you know, a, a way to, you know, a great dignified way to get a little older. Although I was probably only 25 at the time. <laughs> but the funny thing is, as the years go by, I, re- I recognize like that wasn't really a, a like an arbitrary choice. I mean... It, it wasn't just I ran into a guy who I thought had a cool look. It was the 1940s thing itself. I later recognized, well, this was clearly I was returning to my parents' influence again, mm-hmm. who were such enormous influences on my life. That it's now absolutely no surprise to me that I've crafted most of my life around their eras. Um, I think stuff like this happens without you making a decision. 
You know, it's it's interesting you say that. Um, I, I, you know, one of the reasons I relate to your work so strongly is because of a, a certain kind of longing for a connection to the past. And mm-hmm. I lost my parents. Um, my mother I lost when she was relatively young. She was only 62 uh, and I was 40. And my my father I lost about five years ago. So but one of the things that I find, whether it's through photographs or whatnot, and I don't know if this is true for everybody, but I. I want to connect to the world they inhabited and the experience that they had at that time. For example, um, I found a picture of of their wedding, you know, uh, and and then they, and then some photographs in their the first flush of their marriage. And all I could I and they looked so happy. And of course, years later, my parents went through something and got divorced and mm-hmm. and uh, some difficulties. And uh, and I wanted to connect to those people and their experience at that time to see if I connect to that happiness that they felt, if you know what I mean. Um, Yeah. yeah, You know, there's something about trying to reach that place that they existed and, and the, and, and find some tangibility, you know, there, and maybe Mm -hmm. to some extent, maybe that's what we're speaking about, you know, finding some tangible connection to those people, to those places, that have had an impact on our lives. Well, it is kind of unfortunate that it's not until you start getting old that you like have a deeper response or resonance to like your parents' inner lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel like, you know, I was always super interested in my parents. So it's not like I, I suddenly developed an interest in them after they're gone. But it's like now more than ever, I think about like what they were feeling and thinking. Mm-hmm. When it's too late to ask, and probably was always too late to ask anyway. Um, it's very, you, you know, it's, it's very hard to get inside anybody. Yeah. Um, so even though I might now have been able to ask more specific questions, I'm not sure they would have been any more willing to answer them now than they would have then. But it's that inner life, like that, like without getting into a big, complicated history of my mother, I'm just very aware of how alone and isolated she must have been now. And I think to myself, like it kind of breaks my heart. And it's like it only gets you're, you're maybe it's an imagined understanding of them, but it gets richer each year as you get older. Um, it's something you just can't quite understand when you're young. Yeah. And and I mean, we tend to be what's the word callow youth. Right. And mm-hmm. we, we tend to be self-involved, which is part of the process of growing up, obviously, in yeah. this determining, you know, personality and autonomy and all of those things that we go through, unfortunately. Uh, along with that kind of self-involvement comes a kind of willful ignorance of that which went before you, and in, in particular your parents or, or your grandparents. And um, and that was another thing, you know, my grandparents too. I was always trying to, I was always watching movies from the period, you know, that I associated them with, the mm-hmm. 20s and the 30s, you know, hoping to make a connection to the period in which they were, you know, they were, as we call it, they're di- living in their day, you know. Um, you know, to, to feel some connection, you know, to that world and to them. It's funny, you know, my parents were not nostalgic types. They talked about the past a lot, but neither of them was like those were the good old days. Yeah. Um, they were very much of the era they were living in. So when I was growing up with them in the 70s, I mean, you know, my mother was wearing polyester pantsuits and my father had a perm. Um, I mean, these were... Norm, you know, that's that's who they were. But yeah. because they talked so much about the past, 
it really got into my mind and it's like their that era of the past that was their lives is kind of my childhood so yeah. that those old movies you know that's what they were watching on television so that's what i was watching with them um in a weird way when i watch a movie from the 40s now i think of the 70s because that's when i would have been sitting there watching it on tv uh, <laughs> it's funny the culture of the of the early 20th century just was lingering around so much more prevalently when we were growing up than the old culture lingers now um i feel like you know television was was full of old programming i mean they had to fill up 24 hours a day and and it was mostly old movies and old tv shows and i mean you turn on the television now you've got tcm and maybe there's a couple of other channels showing some old stuff but 90 percent of what they're showing is from last year right there's just not that prevalent sense of the past hanging around now maybe there is on the computer although i do think the computer is a little different because you have to actively seek things out Mm-hmm. It's not quite the same kind of serendipity that the culture used to have. Well, you I know, mean, I, I, I'm sorry about that. I, I was but, just thinking, as you were saying, um, how and how aware we were uh, in our, you know, generation, if we will say, um, of of you know previous eras, celebrities, for example, or the stars of old movies, you know, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, Ava Gardner, whatever, a whole list of people who were stars of films that were popular in my grandparents and parents early you know uh 30s 40s 50s that period but because they were on television all the time and that's what was there yeah we became aware of them too i'm a i'm a a university professor i teach you know have been teaching younger people for a long time Mm -hmm. and it's interesting over the last i would say in the last 10 years in particular how less awareness there is of even you know, uh, characters from the period of, of when we grow up from the seventies or whatnot, you know, they're much less aware of, of, uh, you know, taxi driver as a movie or Martin Scorsese yeah. movies from the seventies or the Godfather than we might've been aware of, you know, um, bringing a baby or a, a other Howard Hawks films or something. Yeah. It's funny. I think the culture has shifted in its perception of the past. I mean, I'm not sure that when I was growing up, I even thought about these things as from the past. So yeah. if I turned on the TV, I was interested in seeing like a horror movie or a science fiction movie. If Them came on or Forbidden Planet, mm-hmm. I didn't think to myself, oh, an old movie. I just thought, oh, good, a, a movie with some spaceships in it. Right. It occurred <laughs> to me that that movie was already 25 years old or 30 years old. Um, I would have enjoyed it in the same way I would have enjoyed a TV, mo- uh, like, you know, an episode of a science fiction show that was made that same year. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I may not have discriminated that much between the two items culturally, but I think the culture has changed. There's a some tipping point occurred where old culture got it gets pushed into the past and people are like, what have you done for me lately? And there's a very, very strong like feeling right now that something is old if it's a couple of years old. Yes, sure. And no longer of interest. Like, oh, that's old. We're done with that. Um, I'm sure this will change again, but right now I really feel it might have a lot to do with the internet. You know, the fact that we always need new content constantly. Constantly. Um, people have, yeah, the past is is no longer as of much interest, and mostly it just seems to be a mining place for uh, for imagery. Yeah, uh, it, I th- I think you got a point there. Um, it, it seems as though, it, it, except the one one area where I do find students 
looking back a little bit, and I don't say they look back a great, very distant past, but they will talk about music from the 60s and the 70s yeah. a little bit because that's available to them instantaneously mm-hmm. through Spotify. Yeah. yeah, I mean, to be honest, mu- music uh, culture was hard to acquire in the past. Mm-hmm. It is the big change is that you can literally explore anything very easily now. And the old culture before like the 1980s, was completely a culture based on serendipity. You had to just find things. They had yeah. to come by accident. Maybe you could explore them, but it was often difficult to explore them. Certainly the little town I lived in, which was a, a small town of about 6,000 people, you didn't have a lot of opportunity to how to dig into culture. Mm-hmm. There were only like three sources of where you might learn things, maybe four. And that was television, the radio, the newsstand, and the library. Right. And so if you saw some movie on late night TV and you thought it was really interesting, there was really no way to look up to get any more information about that. Um, you could go down to the local library, but a small town library is not going to have a history of film unless it's like the most basic history of film. Mm-hmm. And uh, so most of the time what you were doing was just finding things by chance and putting them in the back of your brain and letting mm-hmm. them sit there. I can remember it took me more than 10 or 15 years to I knew, till I knew who Leopold and Loeb were mm-hmm. because it came up in a movie or maybe I was watching Rope or something. I don't know. But somewhere I, I heard Leopold and Loeb and I knew there was something about them that would be interesting, but I didn't know what it was. And then finally, in my 20s, I came across another reference and there they were. Um, but now, of course, context is available instantly. Yeah. If you were watching something now, I'm not, and I'm certainly not saying that the old way is a better way. Right. Um, they're just very different. Um, the funny thing is, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very, I'm not Mr. Tech, but I do recognize like it would be foolish to argue for a culture that had less information. <laughs> and so it's like clearly a culture where you can have access to anything or almost anything and you can figure it out is like a superior, uh, it's a step forward. But, you know, nothing is simple. There's something lost in the bargain, too. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I mean and this is one of the difficulties we're facing now, not to, to get into a political discussion at all. But obviously, you know, disinformation, whether it's about politics or current events or about vaccination, whatnot. Um, at the same time that we've got more information at our fingertips and and can become, you know, much more informed about a lot of things. At the same time, there's this proliferation of all this other stuff. So, as you say, it's it's complicated and uh, um, you take the good with the bad and hope that the good will outweigh the bad. But, um, yeah, it was a very different experience in trying to um, cobble up, put together information on any, you know, subject that might be. Mm-hmm beyond the the realm of the public school. So, you know, for example, you know, uh, I think you've spoken about this in the past, trying to learn about cartooning and comics Mm -hmm. uh, was, was relatively difficult. It wasn't easy back in the seventies in the, in, in the, uh, pre pre internet era when you're trying to find out information about this cartoonist or that cartoonist, um, there weren't all that many great sources. No. And it's funny. I think, you know, it's interesting, like these kind of cultural I don't know what you'd call them, uh, cultural facts make make a difference in how culture develops. So my generation of cartoonists and certainly the one before me and maybe before them, too, um, they became collectors. And the simple reason they're collectors is is you had to go and find the stuff 
to have access to it. To understand the history of cartooning, you had to actually go out and dig and yeah. physically, physically look for old books, old comic strips, old uh, uh, cartoon books. I don't find this is necessarily true of the young cartoonists now. I was talking with, uh, I think, Michael DeForge a few, a few years ago, and he was sort of talking about how he's not a collector mm-hmm. and not really interested in the idea of collecting. And, and a lot of stuff, he's just, he's not saying he wasn't interested in it, but it was like, if he wanted to read it, it's right there. Yeah. And we could just look at it anytime. So there's no pressing, like, um, need to look at certain things. And I think this is quite true of, like, the younger cartoonists. They have it at their fingertips. It's not so um, vital. And it's like somebody has kind of already charted out a kind of history of cartooning for you that's made it. um, I mean, it's like when I went to art school, I had a giant book on the history of art, and I didn't read it. I mean, I knew there was, like, a history of art. And if I wanted to know who, what painters were what painters, it wouldn't be any effort to find it out. Mm -hmm. But cartooning, of course... There was no such real books. There were a few primary texts. So Mm -hmm. you literally had to go out and say like, okay, this is what I'm interested in this. What's it all about? And you'd follow threads. You'd say like, oh, Mad Magazine. You know, what's the history of Mad Magazine? And you'd you'd follow through that. You'd find some artists that were interesting. You'd realize this guy's better than that guy. And, oh, here's a woman who did stuff in this year that I never heard of and blah, blah, blah. And over time, what you'd develop is you'd, you'd develop your own list of favorites, but they'd also be a list of influences. And ultimately they'd be like, you're, you created your own progenitors. Um, you made your own history of cartooning. Yeah. And something powerful about that, that, that shaped, I think my whole generation's approach to making comics. Oh yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, what you're talking about is you're talking about, the, this process of seeking and searching and putting together bits of information and collecting it it comes you know full circle to again to your work it shows up pretty much everywhere in your work this idea both yeah. the idea of the collection of of objects through that reveal who we are but also in the collection of comic books in Wimbledon green mm-hmm. uh, and and now as we're talking about in your own life and I realize as we're speaking yeah that's part of my own life too um this this at the same time the choices we make aesthetically in terms of i'm attracted to this and i'm not attracted to that and i'll put this in the pantheon and whatever um we are again through collecting assembling a self and in this case the self of the artist yeah and i think it's very important um just this year i started to like make a new kind of a sort of a diary it's not a diary but for years i've made lists of of like you know artists i like books i like films i like whatever and um the lists would always i found them like there was a confusing problem to making a list and that's to decide like if you're making a list of all the greatest stuff it's like what's great and what's kind of good and what's maybe not so good and ultimately you start to get involved in this process of deciding like what is your winnowing process for what you value and what why is it important to you and the more you study it, the more you think about it, the more you recognize, like, it doesn't have a lot to do with, like, the standards of aesthetics. It has, like, you know, like, you could say, like, clearly, like, um, you know, I'm, if I'm going to talk about, like, a filmmaker, I'm going to say, like, I like, you know, Bergman or something. And I also like um, Roger Corman. It's like, how do I put these two things together? 
And uh, the answer isn't like, well, Bergman's obviously the better artist, so that's the important thing. As I've gotten older and older, I've come to recognize that why you might like things has like very complicated, um, diverse reasons. And it doesn't mean that liking something because it's good work or great work is a better reason to like it than work that is idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm. It all has to do with why you like it. And as I've been putting together this sort of master list now and writing exactly why I like something and throwing out any ideas of high and low, uh, it's like it's more about like it's like creating a portrait of yourself. Yeah. Uh, These things are not chosen arbitrarily. They may have been initially um, or they may have been chosen for visceral reasons. But eventually you, you do a couple of things with it. You either build up rationalizations for why you like something. Or um, you cut through the rationalizations and see that there's a heart at it that, of it that is like a core interest in some way. So some movie that you liked a lot when you were a kid and still continue to like, it might be because of whatever the, the initial response to it is still the same response. There's something in there that like you uh, like, you know, long for. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the opposite could be something you developed an interest in as an adult and then built a system around why you liked it and why it was important to you some you know that it's like there's there's either a building up or a tearing down process of understanding it yeah uh and i i think it becomes in in some ways as time goes on um perhaps it becomes clearer to you you know why you're making the choices you're making at least or at least you come to some kind of understanding of who the person is that are that is making these choices for good or ill yeah yeah and it's and the choices are important in some way um it's funny it's like there's a, there's a quote i came across a couple of years ago and i've been using it now and i, I actually used it in a strip not too long ago but it's a, a quote from the monk thomas merton mm-hmm. and he said basically he said like if you think things are unimportant first you have to see how important they are before you can reach the point where they're unimportant. That's kind of a poor paraphrase of it. But but basically, it recognizes that things, and things could be quite a variety of things, mm-hmm. um, everything from objects to movies to ideas to, well, anything but people probably, um, that there you have to recognize how important they are and what they mean before you can start trying to eliminate them from your thoughts or your life. And certainly, I feel like, Things are super important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so like a film I like, if I really like it, it's like eventually I would say that becomes a part of me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like something I return to constantly. And I have an obsessive nature about like cultural stuff. So when I like something, I like it too much. I, you know, I, I watch a movie. There are certain movies I've watched hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. And um, and books that I return to constantly and and these things, it's like they're I return to them for comfort, obviously, but I also return to them uh, for familiarity. And at some point I return to them because they're like essentially like, you know, a part of my life, um, an important part. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I also think there's that essential thing that spoke to you early on you're rev- in some ways revisiting it in order to understand even more about what that is and and more in perhaps um 
you know, to to plumb deeper into what it was that interested you or connected with you yeah. right from the beginning. And then if you're an artist or somebody who is analytical in any particular way, you sort of start to examine the structure of it in a way. Well, that's a good question is like how deeply when it is something that is that meaningful to you that you've carried it with you for a number of years, how deeply do we go into the structure of those things in order to figure out the workings of that novel or that yeah. play. Sometimes you don't have a choice in it, but the effect is enormous. Like mm-hmm. some things you sit down and you study them and you steal from them. That's mm-hmm. a fact. Yeah. Uh, there's tons of stuff I steal. Sure. Um, there are certain cartoonists that even now, if I'm drawing something, I might pull a book off the shelf and look at how they do a hand or something. Sure. That, that's still like an enormous part. And some stuff is just outright thievery. But then there's <laughs> other stuff that like you didn't plan to take it in and it's in there like and you and you don't recognize it for a really long time so i'll just say briefly there was a book i read as a child like a very young child that was like called 365 bedtime stories mm-hmm. one of these very generic titles but it was a very specific book from 1954 and i read it over and over as a child it was a really important book and then i forgot all about it and then, long story short, later in life, I found it again. And reading that book, I can see like the structure of that book is the structure of every story I tell. Wow. It's just really, really ingrained into how I tell a story. And the other thing that's like that that eventually hit me was like Citizen Kane. I mean, I wow. watched it so many times as a kid that I think like that idea of like looking for somebody's life story through a kind of conv- convoluted path. It's like, that's also every story I write as well. Um, And I don't think I made any conscious choices there. This is like after the fact kind of thinking. Um, And it's like, I'm perfectly fine with this, but these are not things I would have ever said like, oh, those are going to be the structure that I'm going to follow. And later things in life that I deliberately chose, I feel like unconsciously were connected to those original choices. So like I was very, very attracted through most of my 20s and 30s to this spoken word piece by John Cage called Indeterminacy. Mm-hmm. It's super influential on my thinking, but it's actually the same setup as that children's book I was talking about. And I didn't realize that at the time, um, but now I can say, well, I guess that's why I like that John Cage thing so much, because it was just like that other thing I liked so much. Um, interdeterminacy is uh, a series of stories. Exactly. Uh, Unconnected well, stories in theory told randomly, a hundred stories, each a minute long, told randomly, and then at the end of it, um, without any planning, you have like a much bigger story. Right. Which is almost inevitable. I don't think you could put any hundred stories together without creating a bigger narrative. Oh, and the well, narrative, of course, is John Cage. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking... Uh, I, it's been a long time since I heard it, but the one of the things I love about John Cage's spoken work is just the sound of his voice. Oh yeah, uh, you know the sound of his voice is just so uh, captivating and gentle, and uh, and 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 sometimes very funny. Uh, oh, very funny. Very funny. Um, but and and, and I remember some of those things were very funny. Yeah. Well, Yeah, I'll tell you two quick things about that that were kind of amusing. One is, how did I discover that piece? When I was a young cartoonist, like, I don't know, like 25 years old or something, working late in the the night at around two in the morning 
on uh, the Ryerson radio station, they played Indeterminacy. Mm. And I'd never heard of it before. And I listened to it and like, you know, I was flabbergasted with it. It was so great, especially to hear it in the middle of the night, like all alone. And as soon as it was over, <laughs> and this always makes me laugh to think of it. I don't even know how I would have got the radio station's phone number or the DJ, but I immediately called him up and said, like, that was so great. I said, could you play that again so I could tape it? Mm-hmm. And he said, like, well, it's 90 minutes long. He said, like, I can't just play it again. He said, but what I'll do is I'll play it again for you in like two weeks or maybe it was a month. I don't know. Uh-huh. And, and then you could tape it. And I was like, OK, great. So like a month later. He put it on. I pressed, you know, record on the machine. And, uh, you know, inevitably, as these kind of stories always go, something went wrong. <laughs> I only got like an hour of it, I think. Okay. Um, but I listened to that hour of it for like the next 20 years until I managed to find like a, a CD copy of it. Um, and it was like very, very important to me. The thing is, I'd seen John Cage in real life when I was in art school. Oh, yeah. He came to our art school, and I was probably about 19 years old, fresh out of a small town. I'd never heard of John Cage. Uh-huh. I walked in, you know, I came to the lecture, and all I can really remember of the lecture is thinking, who is this strange old man talking on and on about mushrooms? Yeah. <laughs> in many ways, it had no, no effect on me at the time. Although you sometimes wonder, like, is there a subliminal effect that kept him in my, the back of my brain till that moment when I heard him on the radio? I don't know. You know, John Cage, uh, it's interesting that we talk, we're talking about him, and I did want to talk to you about him because there isn't a, a sort of interesting connection there. But um, my mother introduced me to John Cage. My mother was a musician, uh, not the person, I'm sorry, <laughs> to give you that impression, but to his work. Um, she was studying music in the mid-70s, and, um, and she was a classical guitarist, and she um, was also studying piano. And she brought home some uh, some some of the things she was learning from music history, in particular about John Cage, and talked about you know um, his very famous piece, uh, which the title is escaping me now, uh, of two minutes of silence. You know, uh, you know the piece where nobody plays the piano, but yeah. what is the name of that piece now? It's, like, it's the day. It's the it's the uh, number, isn't it? Like three sixteen or something. Something like that. Yeah. And, and anyway, I was fascinated with the idea because, uh, and, and it's still, I'm, I'm fascinated with John Cage. I think he's a really interesting figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that particular piano piece, the idea that you could just sit there for two minutes and whatever happened in that two minutes was going to be the work. That was the music. And the idea that he brought up at the time, um, his artwork was was to, in his words, paraphrasing, to wake you up to the life you are living. Yeah. I thought was the most beautiful idea, although it's not necessarily something I've ever kept to in my, my yeah. artwork. But I do really believe that that's, that's a fundamental attribute, in a way, of what we do as yeah. artists. No, Cage is a very, very interesting artist. I mean, it's not like I sit and listen to much of John Cage's music. I can tell right. you that. I mean, even in indeterminacy, the thing, I was never so crazy about the random indeterminate noises that are playing in the same thing. I was interested in the stories. Mm-hmm. But I was interested in, like, one of his stories in that, that really encapsulates what we're talking about was, he talks about how he was teaching a class in, um, in music history or music theory, and he put on some, like... Uh, record of like an Indian Raga 
And he said it was, you know, like, I don't know, like 24, 30 minutes as it just rose in tempo and intensity until finally somebody in the in the room stood up and shouted, take it off. I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> and, and then as he took it off and another woman said, oh, why did you take it off? I was just starting to get interested in it. And like that essentially to me was like where you recognize this idea that he's teaching you that nothing is boring or nothing is like how it should be. Anything can be interesting. Yeah. Um, and he was very much an advocate of that idea that like um, don't let them fool you into what's what's supposed to be interesting or what is boring. And I keep that very closely at the heart of whenever I'm working on the idea of like don't worry about the ideas of whether anyone will be interested in this or whether you should speed it up in the pace of how you're telling the story or whether you, it's like I believe strongly in in self-indulgence because it's really the only way you can determine what's interesting is by deciding what's interesting to yourself. Otherwise, you lose that connection to self and 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 I hate to use the word now after we've spoken about it, but authenticity. Finding that sense of authentic self is very much at the heart of Clyde Fans, uh, Seth's latest work, and and very much at the at the center of I think all of his work. This search for for the for identity, the construction of identity, uh, when it comes up against the the core of being, uh, and how it all kind of comes together to form an individual. Well. You know, we find that it's really interesting. We find that in, in uh, It's a Good Life, you know, uh, when we go back to It's a Good Life, if you don't weaken. Um, the fictional Seth searching out a fictional cartoonist by the name of Kalo, uh, co- compiling a record or a portrait of this character via the remnants, uh, you know, scattered remnants of his life, um, trying to, to comprise uh, some kind of view of this person or reconstruct this person, um, trying through that to find a way to the authentic person. And, and it's very interesting how that plays out, again, in, in Clyde Fans, uh, his most recent work. There's this, the, you know, I'm thinking about the beginning of the book uh, and the beginning of the book where one of the brothers, Abe, is wandering around the Clyde Fans building uh, in this monologue and through this monologue revealing something of himself and perhaps searching for something of himself as he searches through the rooms. Uh, somewhat aimlessly, it seems like, uh, and that that sort of search that that you know plays out in a variety of different ways in uh, in Wimbledon Green, for example, which may be Seth's most lighthearted work. Wimbledon Green is very much um, not only about comic book collecting, which it is, but it's also about who is Wimbledon Green and how do we do we ever come to really know who he is? Uh, is he Don Green or is he Wimbledon Green? Are they the same person or are they different people? Where did the one go? Where did the one appear? Uh, that plays out there and of course in George Sprott uh, that wonderful book about the television personality from the 50s and 60s. Uh, really, again, trying to, to draw a portrait from interviews, from reminiscences uh, with some of his colleagues or uh, those who knew him. Again, trying to get to the core of who that being is uh, is, is um, evasive and uh, difficult and I think that's one of the themes that seems to run through these great great books by Seth and why they resonate so 
powerfully uh, within me. Those books are all available from Drawn and Quarterly, and be sure to look for them wherever good books are sold. I highly recommend that you pick up Clyde Fans. Uh, if you've never read Seth's work before, uh, It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken is absolutely a wonderful place to start, but also Wimbledon Green is uh, just just so charming uh, a book, and I, I, I can't recommend Really, I don't have a favorite. <laughs> um, it, it's a good life if you don't weaken. Wimbledon Green, the great northern brotherhood of Canadian cartoonists. Uh, George Sprott and uh, uh, Clyde Fans, his most recent work. And we have part two of this interview coming up next time. And it's really, this is where we really get into the meat of talking about Seth's work. So I, I know you will come back for that. Uh, it will happen next week. I promise this show will be up next week. So look for it. And while you're waiting for next week's show, what better way can you spend your time than to go to greenscreencomic.com and check out my Kickstarter. It's available for 30 days. Greenscreen number one is the comic book. It's 36 pages, full color. It's the story of Bella Dilemma and her compatriots Suds and Emmy lost in an alternate reality called the Cineverse, where movies are real worlds. There are a lot of wonderful rewards available at different levels, including green screen number zero zero a second complete comic book 32 pages in full color which tells the story of how it all began if you love fantasy you love comedy you love sci-fi adventure if you love rick and morty and doctor who you're gonna love green screen so be sure to get over to greenscreencomic.com right away and get in on the ground level remember this kickstarter is available for 30 days at greenscreencomic.com or you may go to kickstarter.com projects slash Jeff Grogan slash green screen. That'll do it for this week, folks. Uh, I can't wait to share part two with you. It's, if you can imagine, it's even more interesting than this first episode. And I, again, have to thank Seth for taking the time out of his busy schedule to, uh, to spend an afternoon talking with me. So, uh, I will see you next time, okay? In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Be healthy, be safe. Enjoy the summer weather for as long as it lasts. And uh, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.